it's starting to puff, that is always a good sign. It's like the Westminster Dog Show right now. <laughs> We're seeing the bubbles. It's starting on corn tortillas. Uh, it's rare when the when the corn tortilla bubbles. I need to get my best Eugene Levy voice. Now we're gonna flip it. You see, it still hasn't charred yet, which which is a good thing right now. But we're gonna heat it up because this is a little bit thicker than most machine-made corn tortillas, and it's also blue corn, which you always advocate for. Well, blue corn has a very different consistency. So when it's made well. Before you cook it, it is definitely sturdier. It's less gritty. There's something about it where the masa comes out just smoother. Yeah. Let's okay. go for it. Here we we have a lot to taste. So Here. it's warm. Mm. Oh, that is so good. Right off the bat. So good. It never disintegrated. Oh, it tastes so delicious. It has this earthiness to it, that blue corn imparts. And it's also thick, like... This would be perfect for a quesadilla, a taco, yeah, it's gonna, dunking. It's going to really hold up. This would actually make a great taco dorado. Mm. And what's really interesting about tasting tortillas that I've mm. learned over the years, there are no flavors that stand out. This is all about subtlety. So mm-hmm. usually when you taste a tortilla, if there's a standout flavor, often it's a fault. So it's sourness, it's the acidity of it going off, or it's the bitterness of the preservative. Some people measure the passing of time by the weather. Some people measure it by holidays. I measure it in tortillas. Every year, for the last five years, I've been helping Gustavo Ariano judge KCRW's tortilla tournament. Every year, it's gotten a little bigger and more competitive. Every year, I've learned a little more about the subtleties of texture, flavor, density, and consistency. But in half a decade, one thing has remained the same. At the heart of any truly great tortilla, or pupusa or tamal, you'll find one ingredient, masa. When you're Mexican, you're eating corn tortillas almost from the day you were born. So masa is almost another, it's another limb of yours. It, it's, it's part of who you are. Maiz is life. When people are asked, who are you? People respond with, I am maíz. Soy un hombre de maíz. I'm a man of maíz. Or, soy gente de maíz. A woman of maíz. Or, people of corn. And they say that corn cannot grow by itself. It needs the human being, and the human being needs the corn. Culture, resilience, and the taste of home. That is a taste of what makes us who we are as Mexicanos, as indigenous Mexicans, as indigenous Latinos. I personally sort of became infatuated with corn because of the morphological diversity, right? Just the the sheer variety of colors and sizes and shapes of the kernels and the ears, the variety of uses and its importance for, for cultures in Mesoamerica and its clear importance for modern culture in much of the world. Corn is just so central to the Mexican diet, and it's been that way for the past 5,000 or more years. It's really hard to think of any other ingredient in any other food culture that's just quite so foundational as as corn or maize is in Mexico. But secondly, the practice of turning that corn into masa, which is the basic dough used for tortillas or tamales, it is an incredibly complex and nuanced practice. It's, it's really an art form. 
That's why we're devoting today's episode to a single subject, masa. From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Masa isn't just one thing. There are many different kinds of masa. There's fresh masa versus dry masa. Then you have to think about how you plan to use it. Masa meant for tamales is thicker than masa for tortillas. In the United States, most of the masa that people eat today is made from masa harina, dehydrated, nixtamalized corn flour. Although it's not fresh, it is convenient. But most of that masa harina comes from one source, which is why Jorge Gaviria started Masienda. I think the industrialization of food has done a number on the staples that we know and love. In a lot of ways, there was good. It sped up a process that might otherwise take a really long time. It freed up the leaders of the household, the matriarch, usually in this case, to do other things, you know. But I do think that too much of a good thing might be bad. My name is Jorge Gaviria. I am the founder of Masienda and author of Masa, Techniques, Recipes, and Reflections on a Timeless Staple. The kernel of the idea to start an independent Masarina company blew Jorge's way while he was working at high-end, often farm-to-table restaurants in New York. The more I got deep into the weeds of these restaurants, the more I realized that this kind of ethos that permeated my daily work was really absent from the conversation, you know, and the foods that I grew up eating. So many foods, masa being at the center of that, beans, rice, like staples of a Latin household, to me, lacked that kind of like thoughtfulness from a both brand and storytelling perspective. And certainly the sourcing wasn't there to, to match it either. So I sought out to create a version of the kind of food company I, I wanted to consume myself. To make great tortillas, you need great masa. And to make great masa, you need great maize, also known as corn. It's corn! Tell the truth. Before it became a meme, thanks to one exceptionally cute child, when was the last time you thought about corn? Whether you're eating elotes at a soccer game or scarfing down fistfuls of popcorn as you Netflix and chill, you probably haven't paused to pay tribute to this stuff, which is too bad, because corn is amazing. It can grow in a wide range of latitudes and altitudes. It can survive without much water. It's great at adapting to a variety of microclimates. And corn isn't merely a yummy snack. For most of the original human inhabitants of the Americas, corn was nothing less than a savior. It was the engine of civilization and the crop that built continents. It's corn! Before there was masa there was maize. And before there was maize, there was teosintle, corn's wild and unruly ancestor. Picture it. South central Mexico, roughly seven to 9,000 years ago. We're in what is now known as the Balsas River Valley. It's hard enough for me to imagine what I ate for lunch last week, let alone a landscape from centuries ago. So I decided to ask an expert. Jeffrey Rossi Bada is a professor of evolutionary genetics at the University of California, Davis. He studies the evolution of maize and its relatives. No one knows what things looked like back then, but he was willing to take a guess. 
there are fields of millions and millions of plants that just stretch as far as you can see over over hillsides of just dense teosinte. You'll also see teosinte growing in and among acacia trees. You'll see just vast populations of teosinte across the landscape. That's the teosinte that is what we think the closest wild relative of maize. Teosinte looked and tasted very different from the corn we modern humans are used to. The plant looks a lot bushier than a corn plant. And if you just saw one in the field, you probably wouldn't think that it was a corn plant. And the most noticeable difference, of course, is that while we think of corn as having these large ears alongside the main stem, Teosinte doesn't have that. Teosinte will have, instead of one or two ears, will have hundreds of ears along the plant, along the branches of the plant. And the, the ears are very, very tiny. They'll only have seven or eight kernels. And the kernels are actually covered in this really hard fruit case that you could you know, break a tooth on. How did Teosinte become maize? That's the thing. Nobody quite knows, but it probably took hundreds of thousands of years and a lot of genetic changes. We have a pretty clear idea in terms of the origin of maize of generally where it came from. We know its closest wild relatives. Uh, we know the general geographic area. But actually, a lot of the hows and whys and whens of maize origins are still uncertain. And while that lack of information on maize origins is frustrating, it is good for my job security. <laughs> Unlike many other crops, corn didn't just happen. Its kernels are too closely packed. Its husk, too protective. The kernels can't just drop on the ground and propagate on their own. Corn requires human intervention. The indigenous peoples of Mesoamerica, the vast swath of land that is now North America, Mexico, Central America, and South America, figured this out millennia ago. They practiced intercropping, often growing corn alongside beans and squash, a trio known as the Three Sisters. The ancient milpa was, to borrow a little modern language, organic, sustainable, and regenerative. It was also what allowed civilizations to flourish. Maize is actually pretty amazing in its ability to adapt to different climates and different environments. So maize is grown in rain-fed agriculture in the deserts, the Mojave Desert. Um, maize is grown at 12,000 feet in the Andes. Maize is grown today in northern Europe. By some metrics, at least, maize has colonized a greater breadth of environments than any other major crop. It can grow fast. Some types of corn can go from seed to the next generation of seed in only 60 days. Corn was an important staple crop for a number of civilizations in, in Mesoamerica before European contact, allowing increases in population size and really allowing for large, dense populations. The first step in cultivating corn is choosing which kernels or seeds to plant. The original farmers of Mesoamerica were probably selecting for tasty, hearty, high-yield kernels. But farmers are also really smart. They like to experiment, choosing different types and mixing them up, keeping a diversity of options available, like planting some late flowering or some earlier flowering in case rain was unpredictable. The earliest sort of modern-looking corn cob that I'm aware of is, is something like 5,000 years old. So that's still several thousand years after the first microscopic botanical evidence of corn. 
There was so much variety in early corn, we have no real idea how it looked or tasted. We do know that its genetic diversity is what allowed it to adapt to all sorts of conditions. If that's all that maize had done, it would have been enough. But for the indigenous inhabitants of this land, maize wasn't merely nourishment for the body. It was spiritual sustenance, too. By some accounts, it was the source of life. The corn itself has a responsibility to feed us, as it's our responsibility to keep the corn alive. Um, Because again, corn cannot survive without humans, and humans, at least us and my family, cannot survive without corn. My name is Claudia Serrato. I am an indigenous culinary anthropologist. I study and cook North and Mesoamerican foods and foodways, and do my best as a native chef to revitalize ancestral taste memories through cuisine. Maize played a crucial role in many indigenous religions and spiritual systems. The legends and stories about corn could be an entire episode on its own, so we'll turn to Claudia Serrato for a quick rundown. What's really beautiful is that the ceremonies that were conducted and still conducted to this day really celebrated the life journey of maize. So we're talking rituals that aligned with the preparation of the land in order to plant the seeds. And then you have rituals and ceremonies of the actual seeding. And then once the first sprout comes, it's also significant to uh, time, place, and space, usually meaning the start of spring. Then there's also the growth as it's becoming it's into its adult as it begins to reproduce. And then there's also the harvest ceremony. Then there's the seed saving ceremonies. And then ultimately the dinner, which is a time of conviviencia. So there was never just one deity that was related to corn or to the masa harvest. The creation story of the Mayan people, as laid out in their sacred text, the Papal Vu, speaks to the importance of maize. When the gods wanted to create humans, they first tried to do it with mud. Then they used wood. Neither of these options worked out. What the gods did is they went ahead and gathered corn. Uh, They turned it into a cornmeal, utilizing the volcanic elements to grind and pound. Eventually, they were able to form, according to mythology, four men and four women. Maize was also important in Mesoamerican societies in other ways. Calendars were seasonally aligned, often based on the life cycle of maize. According to Roberto Saintly Rodriguez, author of the book Our Sacred Maize is Our Mother, and a professor emeritus at the University of Arizona, Maize is where philosophy, religion, ethics, morals, they reside there and they're transmitted. And the way they're transmitted is through story and song and dance. Rice and wheat are important around the world. But I don't know if they're as important as the maize is as important to native peoples. It's almost like everything revolves around corn. In October 1492, Christopher Columbus and his raiding party landed on the islands of Guanani and what are now Cuba and Hispaniola. It set in motion a chain of events that would end life as countless indigenous inhabitants knew it. That includes the Taino people, who had been cultivating maize for who knows how long. In fact, the word maize is a Spanish version of the word majiz, which means bread of life or grain of the gods in the Taino language. Along with gold, 
native plants, birds, and slaves, Columbus brought maize back to Spain. From there, it went to Germany, then England. In Corn, A Global History, Michael Owen Jones explains that in the 1500s, Portuguese traders brought maize to the west coast of Africa, while Arab merchants carried it to the Mediterranean and North Africa. In 1620, the first European settlers, separatists from the Church of England, landed in what is now Cape Cod. Corn was one of the first things they discovered, and it would go on to save them. But it isn't the feel-good story you probably learned in elementary school. It begins with an act of theft. Get ready for some Thanksgiving truth. Among the hundred or so passengers on the Mayflower were two men, Edward Winslow and William Bradford. It was shortly after the Mayflower had dropped anchor in Cape Cod Bay. There was an an exploring party sent inland to find out what was around in the area. And they came across a harvested field and an adjacent mound of sand. And buried in the mound, and this is what Winslow and Bradford write, they found a fine great new basket full of very fair corn of this year. The basket held about three or four bushels, which was as much as two of us could lift up from the ground and was very handsomely and cunningly made. Now, the exploring party took the basket with them. So that was the theft, and its contents were added to the provision on board the Mayflower. Winslow and Bradford, in the account they wrote up, make sure to say that the Indians were compensated for the stolen corn later. But in fact, it's important to remember that that very first sort of gift of the Indians was something that the Settlers stole from the Native people. That's Kathleen Fitzgerald. She and her partner, Keith Staveley, are experts on New England's food history. They've written two books on the subject, including America's Founding Food. It's impossible to overestimate how crucial corn was to the English colonists. It's quite certain that the small band that came to settle in Plymouth would not have survived without corn. They were relying on the food on their ship, which was dwindling daily. They had already lost almost half their number from malnutrition over the winter of 1620-21, and they were freezing. The corn that the Mayflower colonizers ate was also pretty different than the corn we know. Some was yellow, some red, and others mixed with blue, and they called it a very goodly sight. It was not like the corn we eat today at all, however. It was a field crop. It was field corn of a particular variety called northern flint corn, which is still grown today. We know that humans in Mesoamerica had been cultivating corn as long as 7,000 years ago. And we know masa also stretches back for countless generations. Although new tools altered the process, in many ways it remained fundamentally the same for centuries. You grow the corn, you harvest it, you nixtamalize it, you grind it into a dough, and boom, you've made masa. But today the production process for most of the masa consumed on this planet is profoundly different. And that's not a good thing. So for me, gruma is the Thanos of the tortilla world. More on Masa's thoroughly modern struggle when we return. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. 
For centuries, people made masa pretty much the same way. If a town had a molinaro, a miller, who could grind everyone's corn, that sped up the process. But from start to finish, it remained time-consuming until the invention of masa harina. We can't talk about masa harina without talking about gruma, or as you may have heard journalist and tortilla tournament founder Gustavo Ariano describe the company. So for me, gruma is the Thanos of the tortilla world, literally snaps its fingers and just destroys independent tortillerias, buys them up. It is a menace to good tortilla eating. Tell us how you really feel, Gustavo. I will always support the people who are doing it the right way and because it's easy. Not just because they're underdogs, but because also their tortillas inevitably taste better. Look at the package of any Gruma product. You're going to have a bunch of ingredients there. A corn tortilla should only have three ingredients. Corn, water, and lime. Gruma a portmanteau of Grupo Maseca, is the massive multinational company that makes Maseca, the dominant brand of masa harina, both in Mexico and the United States. Gruma also makes the two top-selling tortilla brands here in the U.S. Their two biggest selling brands are Mission Tortillas for non-Mexicans and Guerrero Tortillas for Mexicans. And we're talking about in the United States. Gruma is by far the biggest masarina company, the biggest tortilla company in the world. And as I wrote in an article for KCRW, they're also very good at tortilla washing. How big is Gruma? So Gruma today is a multinational corn flour and tortilla juggernaut with operations all over the world. They have at least 70 plants, over 20,000 employees, and they really dominate the tortilla business globally. My name is Elizabeth Dunn, I'm a journalist, and in 2018, I wrote a story called The Tortilla Cartel for Taste Magazine. In 2021, Gruma had net sales of approximately $4 billion. What does that kind of tortilla domination mean for consumers? Just to give you a sense of the ubiquity of those two tortilla brands, go to any Latino supermarket, uh, Northgate, Vallarta, Cárdenas, even, uh, you know, smaller Latino markets, and go see what, you know, the tortilla brands that they sell, the independent ones, and then go see the stand. It'll be a full stand, a full stall for Mission and Guerrero products. They are always by far the most stock products in even Latino supermarkets because they're the cheapest tortilla brands. We're talking about savings about 50 to 75 cents, but still for working class Latinos, they're going to go with whatever's cheapest for them. Sadly, when we talk about cheap, we're also talking about the flavors of these tortillas. Gruma, which has been around since the 1950s, also likes to make a bold claim. In promotional copy on its site, the company used to say it had invented Masarina, but that's not exactly true. So Masa Harina was invented by a man named Jose Bartolome Martinez, and it was invented in San Antonio, Texas, around the turn of the 20th century. Probably in 1896, but it's hard to know for sure. 
Martinez had a masa mill in San Antonio, and he decided that he wanted to experiment with dehydrating the masa to see if you could add water later and save yourself a lot of work. And he debuted a dried cornflour product called Tamalina in 1908. Why is masa harina such a big deal? Because here's the thing with masa, fresh masa does not keep very well. And basically it gets rotten after a couple of days if it's fresh. So in the old days, you know, you could romanticize making your masa fresh every single day, but it's really, really hard work. It is an incredibly nuanced process that involves first growing the corn and then soaking the corn in a mixture of lime and water to do what's called nixtamalizing it. And then after that, grinding the corn, often by hand with stones, and then forming that ground corn into a dough, which is then pressed into tortillas and griddled. And there are just so many different factors that can create a variation in that process that really requires like a long apprenticeship to get this process right. Masa harina was a godsend for many women who are in households who wanted masa at the instant where you could just put it away for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And when you needed to make masa, you just use water and voila, there you have your uh, rehydrated masa. Unfortunately, the story of Jose Bartolome Martinez, the creator of masa harina, was largely forgotten. So when Gruma claimed it invented this stuff, people believed them. Gruma started in 1949, and it was founded by a man named Roberto Gonzalez Borrera. And he'd been an entrepreneurial kid. He grew up in Mexico working as a shoeshine. By the time he was 15, he had his own business selling vegetables. I believe his father was in the grocery industry. And legend has it that when he was 18 years old, he encountered a masajarina mill and thought it presented potentially a huge opportunity, took it back to his father and said, I think there's really something here. But consumers didn't agree. When Gruma started selling Maseca in 1949, people in Mexico hated it. This was not a product that people instantly loved. There were theories going around that Gruma cut its corn flour with wood pulp or paper pulp. People said that it just tasted like cardboard. This was not a product that people tried and loved. Maseca didn't become the top-selling brand in Mexico because the Mexican people had a change of heart and decided they loved it. It came about through Gruma's close relationship with the Mexican government. Originally, back through history... Mexicans typically made their own masa at home entirely from corn grown in their own milpas, their own home gardens. And then in the 20th century, there started to be mills where you could bring that corn to be ground. And and then there were tortilla presses. And fast forward to the 1980s, there are tortilla shops and factories all over Mexico making tortillas supplied by Mexico's three million or so growers of corn, growers of maize. These are small, smallholder farmers. The Mexican government has a series of subsidies in place at this point where they are buying corn from those farmers at a high price and then selling it to these small tortilla shops, these tortilla factories at a lower price. And so the farmers get a living income and the tortillas remain cheap and sort of everybody wins. But then in 1988, Carlos Salinas de Gorteri becomes president, and he is family friends with the founder of Gruma, Roberto Gonzalez Barreta. 
1990, the government says, well, we're going to move away from providing these tortilla shops with cheap corn. Instead, if you want a subsidized product, you're going to have to work with this dried masa. If you want to keep buying corn, you're going to be on your own. You know, and by the way, the, the only producers at this point of masa harina are Gruma and the Mexican government. So this is really kind of a direct benefit to Gruma. And Gruma makes things easy for tortilla factories by giving them cheaper free equipment to make the conversion to masa harina. So Gruma gets fat on government subsidies and the tortilla shops that are continuing to use corn from local farmers really just can't compete on price. So hundreds go out of business. And like to put this in context, imagine if the French government decided to put a policy in place that would do away with baguettes, and it was only going to be Wonder Bread from now on. As though Gruma's deal with the Mexican government wasn't bad enough, traditional maize farming in Mexico was about to get hit with another blow. If Gruma was the right uppercut, NAFTA was the left cross. Together, this one-two punch dealt the knockout blow for traditional maize farming in Mexico. The effects are still being felt to this day. NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which took place January 1st, 1994. It's an agreement that links the economies of Canada, Mexico, and the United States. My name is Alicia Galvez. I'm a professor of Latin American and Latino Studies at Lehman College and of Anthropology at the Graduate Center, both at the City University of New York. Alicia Galvez is also the author of the 2018 book, Eating NAFTA. Mexico had an idea that to become a prosperous 21st century power, that it needed to move away from subsistence agriculture. There was an idea that it was less efficient at growing food than at doing other things, and that if it could move into manufacturing, aeronautics, uh, producing car parts, that it could become uh, more prosperous more quickly than if it continued to have a subsistence subsistence agriculture-based economy, which is kind of a strange calculus because it was really the countryside that powered Mexico's progress and prosperity in past decades and centuries, in fact. But this was the idea that was really driving their pursuit of NAFTA in the late 80s. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone and create 200,000 jobs in this country by 1995 alone. The environmental and labor side agreements negotiated by our administration will make this agreement a force for social progress as well as economic growth. Unfortunately, this calculus was faulty in terms of the impact. Mexico ended up really displacing millions of people from the countryside fairly rapidly after NAFTA went into effect. And the promised jobs that were supposed to open up in other sectors didn't happen. And so we saw really just a boom of Mexican migration, as many as one in 10 Mexicans moving to the United States in the 10-year period after NAFTA. We also see just a massive displacement from the countryside where poverty, instead of going down, actually rises. And a lot of people move to the cities, but not to be folded into a prosperous economy. NAFTA wasn't 
actually designed for the prosperity of the general public. It was really designed as a wish list for already prosperous elite sectors in each of the countries, already powerful corporations to really monopolize how globalization would occur. And it ended up negatively impacting the little guy. And in that, I include all of us who are part of the 99% in all three countries. Plenty of other companies, aside from Gruma, benefited from NAFTA. But there's really nothing, I think, so emblematic as Gruma because Gruma produces industrialized tortillas. And it's with NAFTA that we really see the most stark transformation of the Mexican diet. Centuries of colonization, conquest, in which there was a continual assault on traditional indigenous foodways had nothing paled in comparison to what happened with NAFTA. Gruma, for its part, touts the speed, efficiency, affordability, and consistency of its tortillas. Gruma is always going to claim that, look, we make it easier for people to make tortillas. We make a more uniform product. You can always count on us for consistency. And look, again, I'm not going to romanticize how people made tortillas in the olden days, and los días de antepasado, because it was hard. But Gruma products are inferior. Okay, it's consistent. It's consistently bad. It is tasteless. It is bland. It has nothing to do with what a tortilla is supposed to taste like. Do you really want to sacrifice taste and uh, food stuff that connects you to the ancients that goes back thousands of years all in the name of expediency and facility? Not me. So if you're young and ambitious and working in restaurants, what do you do? How do you push back against the corporate machine and carve out a little piece of the world to call your own? We'll find out when we return. Welcome back to Good Food. Growing up in a Cuban-American household in Florida, Jorge Gaviria thought he knew masa. You know, I thought I grew up eating the most authentic tortillas. They weren't Mission. They weren't even Guerrero. They were like a local brand from a local tortilla in, in uh, Miami, or so I thought. It actually turned out that they were using Maseca, which is what most of the tortillas across the country use. So they were all pretty much designed to taste exactly the same. They just felt like, you know, that local branding element that made it feel like it was sort of special to my, you know, my hometown. It just had like a Mexican flag on it and very, very bleached white tortillas that tasted as acidic as they smelled. I grew up eating, you know, carnitas on the weekends. My favorite snack after school was a, a Munster cheese tostada, which is like as much of a cultural collision as you can kind of imagine it to be, made in a toaster oven. As Jorge broadened his horizons and developed his palate, he started to ask the question, how is a tortilla actually made? Stodging at a restaurant in New York, he saw tortillas being made, quote, from scratch, but with maseca. He wasn't satisfied. At the time, his dream was to open up the equivalent of Tartine Bakery, but for tortillas. I didn't have any concept or business plan how that would happen. It just sounded really cool. With a lot of confidence and a lot of naivete, I was like, all right, I guess the most important thing here that we need to figure out is the sourcing. Because you look around the U.S., even some of the darlings of the heirloom corn movement are all kind of sourcing from similar places. There wasn't a lot of diversity to that story. And I don't think it told the story that I was looking for of the foodway of masa, you know, and I think if you're going to trace that, you got to go to Mexico. 
During his research trips, Jorge saw how government policies had displaced subsistence corn farmers in Mexico. And so I thought, man, that's amazing. Like, you know, what if we just leveled the playing field or at least offered an option to this group of three million farmers that, that are still doing this work and growing the greatest quality corn in the world? What could happen? When he started Macienda in 2014, Jorge was sourcing most of his corn from Oaxaca. He has since branched out. I think we're in six or seven states, depending on the year and the harvest. But Oaxaca, despite being one of the smallest states in Mexico, it's about 4% of the total land share. It is the most biodiverse of any state. So you've got of the 59 land races, 35 of them come from Oaxaca, which is pretty amazing. The term land race corn refers to heirloom corn that has over many years been optimized and adapted to a particular area and climate. You couldn't take it and grow it in Iowa with any success. It's been locally adapted for thousands of years and, you know, has a terroir and characteristic all into itself. Starting a masa company that required him to import heirloom corn from Mexico to the United States meant Macienda had to figure out a supply chain, one that was equitable for the farmers they worked with. The commercialization of quinoa was a cautionary tale. When the ancient Andean grain became popular around the world, the demand drove up the price. Unfortunately, that meant poorer residents of Peru and Bolivia, who had eaten quinoa as a staple food, could no longer afford it. Jorge Gavidia didn't want the same thing to happen to heirloom corn. It's really expensive for farmers to take product to market, especially given the rural areas that they live in. To take 200 pounds of corn to a market two and a half hours away when you don't have a car, you don't have access to public transportation, you know, it's a non-starter. And so they would work with sort of these intermediaries or coyotes in some cases, as they're known, to get corn to market. Well, sometimes they wouldn't end up getting paid or they'd get paid half of what they said they would get paid. No one had ever paid cash at three to five times the commodity price in full and make them whole as soon as harvest was done. No one had ever thought about that um, or had certainly ever done it in that way. From 12 farmers in Oaxaca to a network of approximately 2,000 farmers throughout Mexico, and from 40,000 pounds of corn per year to 2 million, Macienda has grown. But Jorge has had to be careful. We haven't necessarily scaled with each individual farmer because they're growing for subsistence purposes. So what they grow for themselves is really the priority. And if they have any surplus, that's what we buy. They're not commercial growers in that true sense. They're really subsistence farmers, and we're just giving them that additional surplus opportunity there to, to sell it. Compared to the 846 billion, that's billion with a B, pounds of corn produced each year in the United States, it's a drop in the bucket. When I first started, I had two really strong drivers. The first was I wanted to disrupt, quote unquote, disrupt Maseca and Gruma, and I really wanted to kind of stick it to the man. You know, the truth is, is that Convenient food exists for a reason. There's a reason. There's a whole structure that supports it. And I've been pretty humbled. It's also really hard to produce food at scale. I got to give anybody who's producing food at that scale credit. No matter what their political or philosophical values are, it's kind of a miracle to do it and, like, frankly, not kill anyone. Jorge Gavidia remains a student of Masa, but he has also become something of a teacher. This summer, he released a 271-page book, Masa, Techniques, Recipes, and Reflections on a Timeless Staple. 
The book, which was the inspiration for this episode of Good Food, unpacks the kernel to masa process while sharing science, history, practical tips, and plenty of recipes. Tlayudas, tetelas, pupusas, atole, waffles, a masa samosa, and a corn dog that actually tastes like corn. For Jorge, it was both a practical and a personal mission. Masa has been nine years in the making. I think starting with my initial plunge into the subject, it was something that was really hard for me to train chefs on, you know, how to use our corn when there wasn't more than a page or two in a book anywhere on how to do this. That was the start of it, just seeing some of my heroes get totally flummoxed and humbled by making masa in-house to me was an eye-opening experience. Like, man, I think there needs to be a dedicated resource for this. With all this high-quality masa available, what should we be doing with it? We'll explore that when Good Food returns. This is Good Food, where we're devoting today's episode to a single subject, masa. Now that we've inspired you to do more with masa, what should you make? Tortillas are always a good bet. We host a whole tournament dedicated to them here at KCRW. But there's another option that makes brilliant use of masa. Yes, I'm talking about the tamal. For Gustavo Arellano, the founder and host of our tortilla tournament, tamales mean Christmas. You would have the whole army of tias, of ants, getting together, and one would make the masa. Another one would spread the cooked masa on the corn husk to make the tamal. Someone else would actually be in charge of, of boiling the water to make sure that the tamal cooked well. Claudia Serato's tamaladas are legendary, and the culinary anthropologist will school you on the history of the dish. Tamales actually don't really have a true place of origin because they kind of existed all at the same time. So many indigenous pueblos throughout Mexico pretty much came up with their own style of tamales. There's always an idea that, oh, the tortilla came first. But the truth is, no, tamales did because of the method of preparation. This ancient dish wasn't just for holidays. In pre-colonial times, the tamales were prepared all year long, and they were not made just as pockets of dough. They were actually filled. Fillings varied per region, place, and time. They were usually seasonal fillings. If people lived by the coast, then you would find more fish. For folks that were up in the hillside, you would see more rabbit or you would see more deer. Tamales might have been filled with turkey, wild plants, and whatever else was available. Iguana, even frogs, birds, shrimp, cricket tamales, larva tamales. And then there was avocados, bean, tomato, chilies, and my ultimate favorite, which are cacao, and fruit and vegetables. The majority of tamales, I will say, were plant-based. Just as there were many fillings for tamales, there were many kinds of masa. Coarse masa, wet masa, thin masa, thick masa, yellow masa, red masa, blue masa. 
for 45 years now, my family continues to honor the tradition of the tamalada. Every week, which is usually the week of Christmas, once a year, my family decides on what style of tamales we will be baking for that year to celebrate our resilience, our family unity, our cultura. We split and delegate who's going to gather, who's going to pound, who's going to maciar, who's going to participate in the steaming and in the uh, separation of tamales. Claudia is known for her bison blue corn tamales. For those, she often integrates quinoa into the masa. If she's making sweet tamales, she might add amaranth to the dough. The possibilities are endless. After we get through the grinding, then we go ahead and begin to prepare our masa. I like to do mine very traditionally. I don't like to use a mixer for my masa. For me, it takes away that cultural connection. I'm really used to digging my hands in there, mixing it. It's a lot of arm work. And doing that work, it also reminds me of my grandmother. And this is a little emotional for me, but I remember her arms, you know, and I remember looking at them as a child. Once the masa is ready to go, Claudia uses an ice cream scoop to dole it out onto corn husks that have been soaked in water. She spreads the masa and then... Depending on what we are filling it with, we get our portion and we, we place it right in the center. And we usually wrap our babies. When we wrap our babies, we say wrap our babies like a tamalito. And we do the same thing to our tamales. After that, the tamales are steamed, maybe for an hour, maybe longer. It depends on how many there are. The whole process involves 20 or so people and takes most of the day. It's labor intensive, but like that's the point to making the tamales because it creates unity. It brings us together. And not just that, but it asserts who we are as indigenous Mesoamerican peoples. Finally, it's time to eat. Still covered in masa, still with our dirty aprons. We grab a plate or just through the masa, through the tamal itself, right? We just open it up and we use the husk of the corn to grab our tamal. We take our first bite and, you know, we're tasting for salt. We're tasting for flavor. We're tasting for a feeling that it creates in us. And it's a sense of accomplishment. It feel You feel like you've completed your duty. You have honored yourself. You've honored the ancestors. And then it's time to make the next batch. While homemade tamales are often a holiday treat, too labor-intensive to be made on the daily, tortillas are a workaday staple. But making a great tortilla isn't easy. When you fold up that tortilla and make a taco out of it and you put it in your mouth and you take those bites, please try to remember that hardworking people with families work very hard to get that done, to put it on your plates. I know from firsthand experience that tortilla making is one of the hardest things to do. Hi, my name is Ricardo Ortega. I am one of the co-founders of Kernel of Truth Organics, a tortilla provider here in the greater Los Angeles. When Ortega and his business partner, Omar Ahmed, launched Kernel of Truth in Boyle Heights in 2014, they faced all the usual hurdles. Location, space, equipment, consistency, cash flow, long hours. They also struggled with a more theoretical issue. So our biggest hurdle 
in our operation really was dissecting what a true tortilla should be, even before we offered it to anybody. Because in where we come from, tortillas are designed to maximize profits. And the only way to do that is to alter its true design. You know, the tortilla in the big industry is chock full of gums, additives, softeners, preservatives, you name it. The running joke with Omar is there's more corn on the logos than there is in the actual tortilla. Finding the kind of corn they wanted was an issue. Kernel of Truth has sourced corn from Macienda, from the Tehachapi Grain Project, from farmers in Nebraska and Illinois. These days, they rely on dent corn in both yellow and blue varieties. When it arrives, they need to nixtamalize it. This involves soaking it in an alkaline solution made of water and lime. We're not talking about the kind of lime you might squeeze into a gin and tonic. We're talking about slaked lime or calcium hydroxide, often called cal. It's a crucial step in the process because it loosens the hull around each corn kernel, raises the calcium content, and increases the bioavailability of vitamin B3. Nixtamalization played an important role in keeping people healthy. In pre-colonial times, while people around the world were suffering from pellagra, a disease caused by niacin deficiency, the indigenous inhabitants of Mesoamerica had no such problems. Once Ricardo and Omar nixtamalize and grind their corn, it's time to make the masa that they will eventually turn into tortillas. So the immediate way to tell if the masa is good is the minute you pick up your ball of masa and you open up the bag, you shouldn't smell any acidity. The acidity is all the preservatives. What you should smell is corn. Then it's a race against time to get the masa pressed into tortillas, cooked, packaged, and delivered. Blue corn does not like to stay fresh. It likes to spoil, and its shelf life is not that like of yellow corn. Yellow corn is a little bit more stable. The pHs are better, and it, it does last longer. Although things have gotten a bit easier, Ricardo knows full well the challenges that Kernel of Truth faces. So running a small tortilla business with all the competition around us, with Gruma and with all the political ties around surrounding that, it has become very difficult. It's been hard to be the small guy. I think luckily we have a lot of resources in Boyle Heights. So even though we have these big, big corporate names out there that are kind of muscling in, it's the producers that are run by families who are are saving grace. Fresh, high-quality masa is also critical for Chef Carlos Salgado's business. When he was getting ready to open his own restaurant, his first priority was building a better tortilla. He turned to Jorge Gaviria at Macienda. He sent to us our very first bag of Conico Azul, the blue corn from, I think it was the state of Mexico at the time. I proceeded to conduct a variety of tests in terms of quantity of cal and cooking time and what the doneness would be. And, and I, I do recall the very first time we, we got a beautiful tortilla and I handed it to my dad and he fell silent. And one of his cooks uh, did the same. After a moment, my dad quite emotionally said that he hadn't tasted anything like that in 
30, 40 years since uh, having come to this country. And that's when I knew that I had the foundation. I had the, the first tool uh, that I needed to build a restaurant like I had imagined in Taco Maria. Taco Maria in Costa Mesa has gone on to earn rave reviews and to win numerous awards, including a coveted Michelin star. The way a Japanese chef knows the nuances of rice or an Italian chef is attuned to the subtle differences in pasta, Carlos Salgado studies corn. The fundamentals of cooking corn with alkali solution, resting it, grinding it into a masa, and then forming it into tortillas is, is simple on its face. But the nuances take time to learn. The exact doneness of a particular variety or even a particular bag or from a particular harvest of dried maize will be different from day to day. The exact water content of the finished masa for tortillas or for tamales is also an instinctive and delicate thing. He isn't the only chef who's upping his masa game. This new wave of appreciation for masa has been a boon to diners and cooks around the world. As I told Jorge not too long ago, the situation we have now with the availability of heirloom corn tortillas in Southern California, in, in the United States, and in other parts of the world is exactly the situation that we wanted and had envisioned and hoped for when we got started all those years ago. I wanted for myself and for my restaurant to have access to and to be able to share the full spectrum of flavors and colors and textures and aromas that the world of corn provides. There definitely is a, is a masa revival, <laughs> a renaissance of tortillas. Again, that's Professor Alicia Galvez. In some ways, my only critique of the idea of a revival or renaissance would be the re. I don't think tortillas and masa have ever really gone away from any of us. I'm from L.A. I know <laughs> Southern California listeners have never stopped loving tortillas or eating them. And so I think we have a certain amount of healthy skepticism of this kind of narrative of discovery. Some people call it a Columbusing of something that has been here all along. What does Masa's surge in popularity mean for the people who grow corn in Mexico, the land of its birth? The revival that we see where now a lot of us living in the United States and around the world can eat excellent, fresh tortillas from nixtamalized corn that was ground the same day is a beautiful thing, but it's also unfortunately often an elite thing that prices people out to whom this tradition historically belongs. There's a concept that I think about a lot, which I call narrative capital. And we have to think about who gets to tell stories, whose stories are audible, to whom. And elite chefs have all kinds of capital. The idea that a chef is needed to respect corn or to tell corn's story is absurd because that's a story that's inherent to the origin stories of indigenous communities throughout the Americas. And so I think we have to be cautious when we think about all kinds of capital and capitalism, that the ability to tell stories, narrative capital, is one kind of capital that gets manipulated in the global market. And we have to be attentive to who has it and who has had it taken from them. The irony isn't lost on Masienda founder Jorge Gavidia. It's ironic, not in like a hipster way, but definitely like a kind of an intellectual way to take corn from the origin of corn itself 
and sell to folks in arguably the largest, most powerful corn producing country and nation ever today, which is the U.S. Primal life force or modern delicacy? Masa has the rare distinction of being both an ancient food with infinite modern variations. The dishes we make from it have a way of connecting us across cultures and through history. Sometimes that link is with the ancients. Sometimes it's with ourselves. Because a tortilla doesn't need to win a prize to win our hearts. Corn's worth goes way beyond its value as a cash crop. And masa, it's so much more than a dough. If you missed any of today's show or you want to listen to it again, you'll find it on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Elena Shatkin, Laurel Garcia, Jillian Ferguson, Kenny Ng, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. Special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Gary Masiha. An extra special thanks to Jorge Gaviria and Gustavo Ariano. I'm Evan Kleiman. This Sunday, October 16th, you can find me at the finale of KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. It goes down at Smorgasburg, LA. Go to kcrw.com slash goodfood for details.